Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I talk with fascinating, talented, and inspiring guests who reflect on the adventures and challenges of aging and who are living their lives with vibrance and purpose. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist, writer, and fellow Zestful Ager. I want to invite you to my brand new free webinar, Zestful Aging, Here's How You Do It. Many of my clients tell me that they're stretched too thin with too many demands upon them. They are just worn out. In my brand new webinar, I teach simple and sensible habits that will significantly improve your life now and help you age with vibrance and resilience. But it's important to start now. Don't wait until your body's distress signals go from a whisper to a scream. If you've followed me at all, you know I'm not about restrictive diets or boot camps. I believe life can be challenging enough. Let's appreciate our bodies and minds for the miraculous systems they are and take the time to take care of ourselves. Self-care pays big dividends now and in the future. And being well ourselves is the only way we can help those we love. And if you sign up now, I will send you my super zestful aging checklist, which I designed so you have clear guidelines right at your fingertips. The webinar is free. You can sign up at NicoleChristina.com. And as always, I appreciate your feedback. Well, I have my Jack Russell Terrier Sparky right beside me and my coffee in my hand. So let's begin. Eileen Schell is Professor of Writing and Rhetoric at Syracuse University. She directs the Composition and Cultural Rhetoric Doctoral Program at SU and is the author, co-author, and editor of seven books. She, along with her colleague Ivy Kleinbart, started an intergenerational community writing group for veterans in 2010 in honor of her late uncle, Brady Lane Smith, who served in Vietnam as a helicopter pilot for 27 months. The group offers public readings and open dialogues on war and the military experience. Shell is also the co-facilitator of the Moral Injury Project at SU, which is a project that addresses moral injury among veterans and military family members. She has run a community writing group for seniors at the Nottingham Senior Living Community since 2000. Welcome to the show, Eileen. Thank you. It's great to be part of it. You have so many interesting projects going on, but if if it's okay, I'd like to start with a moral injury project. And um, can we start by just defining for our listeners, what is a moral injury? So moral injury in the military context refers to having to do or see or participate in something that violates your moral compass. So, for instance, if you grew up with a spiritual understanding that killing is wrong, 
immediately uh, when joining the military, you will be in many ways violating that moral compass because part of what you learn to do when you're in basic training and then in the military is that you have to defend uh, yourself and others you're serving with and you will have to kill potentially to do that. So that's one example of moral injury. And then it can become more complicated in terms of witnessing other troops or other acts during the time of war or during military service where you feel that you are participating in or seeing or even taking part in um, an aspect of military life that is violating your moral compass. And so this is very common in military experience. And it's not just limited to the military. It can also happen to people in professional settings, cops, firefighters, anybody who's involved in potentially life-threatening situations as well as non-life-threatening situations. Mm-hmm. And how uh, most of us are familiar with uh PTSD generally, and how is it related to PTSD? Well, post-traumatic stress is diagnosable and something that manifests in particular ways, physiologically, emotionally. With moral injury, it can take place and it can take um, manifest itself in terms of a variety of responses and symptoms. It's not diagnosable. It's something that is happening internally. It's something that's happening to the person in terms of their own moral beliefs and their own sense of self in relationship to the larger world. So it's more complex. Um, I mean, post-traumatic stress uh, is also complex, but it's, it's complex to a name and understand. And in fact, a lot of people come and participate in events that we hold for the Moral Injury Project and say, I didn't have a way to understand this. I was just calling this post-traumatic stress. And really what I understand has happened to me is that I have moral injury and I've responded to um, the situations I've faced as a veteran and as a military service member um, through this response. So part of what moral injury involves is understanding that a part of the self and a part of the, the person has experienced a violation of the moral compass and that there will be a lot of different responses and effects to that and some will not be predictable and um, it may be not it, it may be something that can't be entirely treated it can be something that could be responded to and dealt with but that um, in, in terms of like drug therapies or sort of recognizable therapies um, that there might not be a easy solution to addressing moral injury, that it might be a combination of factors for addressing it in terms of a physical exercise, talking to a spiritual advisor, um, taking certain kinds of actions to create a sense of closure. Um, so moral injury is just becoming um, more commonly talked about in veteran communities and in relationship to the medical establishment. It's a very old uh, phenomenon. If you look at the Iliad and the Odyssey, you see evidence of moral injury, but it's really something that's coming into the dialogue about veterans and in- reintegration and also healing from trauma. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like people could experience it many, many different ways. Um, it's not necessarily like nightmares or flashbacks or, or that kind of thing, but 
it's it's very internal and can vary widely from person to person. That's right. And that's why it's difficult to talk about um, because a lot of times people want to say, well, this is what moral injury is. You go through these experiences, what the kinds of things you just named, and it's more complicated. It could be a pervasive sense of guilt. It could be, um, you know, experiencing... Um, a, a, a strong sense that you don't deserve to live because part of what you did uh, makes you feel that you don't you you don't have the right to continue to exist. And so moral injury also often keys into suicidal ideation, people feeling like I have done so many things or seen so many things that are so terrible that I can't continue. I don't deserve to live. And so moral injury in a lot of ways, uh, can be very lethal. And it also can be something people carry around for a long period of time, not even understanding what it is that's happened. Um, it's like, I went to war, I did my duty, I came home, why can't I get over it? Why can't I reintegrate? And part of the Moral Injury Project is helping create spaces for people to begin to heal and talk about the experience and have a space for processing and understanding it. And also understanding that each person has a different timetable and a different set of strategies for addressing uh, moral injury and that there are communities that people can join to and connect with um, and that, you know, going to the VA might be a solution for some people in terms of getting help through therapy, um, but that a lot of times it's more complicated and more um, dynamic in terms of Therapy may or may not help. It may it may be wonderful, but it also may not be enough. There may be other forms of healing that are needed. Mm-hmm. And I'm also curious about the context. If you know people who fought in World War II ha- would have the same likelihood of having moral injury, um, you know, as opposed to people who who fought in Vietnam. Well, I think. I think as civilians, we tend to think of wars as having um, different moral and political stakes, but all war has moral and political stakes. And so if you fought in Vietnam or you fought in Iraq or Afghanistan or World War II, uh, as civilians, we might say, well, World War II is the good war and Mm -hmm. Iraq and Afghanistan are the bad wars or the more problematic wars, and yet people have moral injury from all wars and all experiences. And if you look at the Iliad and the Odyssey, these these ancient tragedies, you see the characters struggling with the same set of moral questions coming back from war. Who are they when they come back? What is it that they've done and seen? Are they the same person? Uh, and, you know, what is what is possible in terms of moving forward? So I've talked to a number of World War II veterans and worked with them as writers who they have really strong questions about what they did and what they experienced. And there was a World War II veteran that I was working with out at the Nottingham Senior Living Community. He fought in World War II very bravely. He was a pilot, but uh, he had to strafe a column of Japanese troops as part of his military duty. And he never forgot that. He felt that he had violated his moral compass, that they were defenseless. They were down on the ground. And it was his job, though, as a, a pilot 
um, for the U.S. to strafe that column and to take out those Japanese troops, but he felt that he had such an unfair advantage that he shouldn't have done it. And mm. he was still talking about that well into his late 80s and early 90s. Mm -hmm. And so even as somebody like Tom Brokaw would argue he's part of the greatest generation, he would argue that he was not part of the greatest generation, mm -hmm. that what he had done was unforgivable. And um, he also talked a lot about how he felt when he was serving um, in Japan after the bombs had been dropped. I was just thinking about that. Yes, Hiroshima and Nagasaki mm -hmm. and how, how the destruction that he witnessed and saw as an American pilot was unforgettable and that he realized the inhumanity of war and that he he had participated in that and even though he didn't drop the bombs he was part of the air force and he was part of the you know he was part of the the allied troops that had um supported the bombs and so he he felt moral injury just by witnessing what had happened to the japanese people the incineration of the cities of hiroshima and nagasaki the the casualties the deaths and also just mm -hmm. the emotional and physical aftermath for the mm -hmm. Japanese people. And he never forgot that. And I, and every World War II vet that I've talked to that had any contact with that particular aspect of the war had, has, has severe, um, you know, obviously severe moral injury in terms of witnessing it. They may or may not call it that, but as I hear it and as I've, uh, experienced it in working with them as writers, that that's definitely present. So I'm not sure if moral injuries can find any one conflict or, or, or any one um, circumstance in war. Um, certainly there are, there are um, atrocities and war crimes and being witness to that or taking part in that would leave uh, a very big mark. Um, and certainly one, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I think, are, are in many ways exemplars of that in mm -hmm. terms of using that lethal force and capacity mm -hmm. to just kill many, many innocent civilians. Um, mm -hmm. And the argument was, of course, that this was the price of war. This is how the war ended um, because of it. But there would be many who would argue with that. And were you interested in moral injury and, and that kind of subject matter um, apart from your uncle? Has this always been something you've been curious and, and wanting to learn more about? Or was it really your relationship with your uncle that pointed you in this direction? Well, I think, I think my experience with my uncle and watching what he went through coming back from Vietnam and also knowing how much family members of mine who were adults cared for him and tried to help him and didn't really know exactly what to do or how to handle it. The VA at the time had not even, um, when he came back in the, the mid seventies had not even come up with the term post-traumatic stress disorder. That was not even part of the discussion. People would use terms like shell shock, but mm -hmm. Um, so I, I, I was interested because of him, but also when I was in my um, middle school years, I read and did a whole project on the Holocaust, and I read a lot of eyewitness accounts 
um, about the camps and about uh, the liberation of the camps and also what people had experienced who were my age at the time of the Holocaust, uh, 12 and 13 year old Jewish girls and what they had been through in terms of their own traumas, if they had survived. And I remember thinking, how do I get my mind around what the world is? These moral and ethical questions, like going through that, experiencing that that terrible uh, violence and oppression and genocidal impulses on the part of the Nazi regime against Jewish people, mm-hmm. as well as, as gypsies and labor unionists, mm-hmm. socialists, I mean, all those different groups. Mm-hmm. I just... I just wondered about what is this world that we are living in? You know, I grew up in a little small town, a pretty safe place to grow up. And I remember doing that report and never feeling like I was the same after that. Just Mm -hmm. thinking, how can people commit these atrocities? How could these, how could these Nazis do this? How could other people collude with them to make it happen? There were for every person uh, operating the gas chamber, there were people supporting that system. So I, I started thinking about the more morality and the ethics behind the, that decision making and also what it would have been like to have been one of those girls going into that situation. And that made me think a lot about war, about genocide. And I think I was it, you know, I was at adolescence, so it brought up a lot of questions for me about what kind of world am I walking into, um, and you know, how can I be part of a world in which we don't make those deci- those genocidal decisions? How can I be part of stopping that? How can I also be part of sorting through the aftermath of war and these experiences? So I think. I don't know. There was something about that moment of encountering the Holocaust that I think really started me thinking about this and also connecting it to what my uncle was going through. He had been part of the war machine um, that had wreaked havoc on the Vietnamese people. So um, he didn't spend his time shooting people. He was mainly dropping troops off in the jungle and picking up body bags, but he still saw all of that. Mm -hmm. And so it made me make connections, I think, between that his, you know, analyzing the history of the Holocaust and reading these eyewitness accounts, mm-hmm. many from young girls who had grown up and written about it, and then thinking about my uncle who had participated in a larger structure that had mm-hmm. had created a lot of death and destruction, and it made me interested in asking those questions and not avoiding it because it's really easy as a civilian just to say, I oppose war, I walk away from it, I protested actively, which I have. I protested the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan as an individual, as a peace protester. But I also felt like I had to be part of a community, creating a community where veterans could process what they had experienced and what they had seen and what they had participated in. So that's where the Veterans Writing Group came into the mix. So what is the process? Um, people, how do people, con- how do veterans know about you? And then what does it look like once they contact you? What's the, how's, how does it go? Yeah, great question. Um, so the group started in 2010 and it started out very small at Syracuse University, but it's open to all members of the armed forces, whether they're active duty or they're veterans and their and fam- military family members. So parents of troops or, you know, spouses, brothers, sisters. Um, So the group started out with us advertising, my colleague and I, Ivy Kleinbart from the writing program at Syracuse University, we advertised it to different veterans organizations 
uh, veterans of foreign wars, uh, Clear Path for Veterans, um, just all the local organizations, the VA. Um, and we put out the word through flyers and also some press releases. And so the group started very small with about four people. And then it's grown over the years. Um, so we're eight years into this now. So it's grown um, from four people or a handful of people attending to more like a dozen to 15. And sometimes the group's even been as large as 20 people, which we like to keep it a little smaller than that. But the, the group meets once a month on the Syracuse University campus in the Writing Center, which is right on the quad of Syracuse University. So nice central location. And we meet uh, for two hours. The focus of the group is on writing nonfiction accounts of life in and out of the military. So people in the group will write from their own experience. We'll give them writing assignments or writing a prompts at the, at the meeting. We write on site at the meeting for about 20 minutes. We then share what uh, has been written. We do a read around where people read from their work that they've produced on site. Uh, and people comment and give responses. We also have people bring manuscripts that they've started to develop. So we often spend about 30 minutes or 40 minutes looking at a manuscript or two that a group member has composed prior to coming to the meeting and that we, we have distributed before the meeting. And then that's a, a space for more commentary and critique on the writing itself, not just the experience, but the writing, how the person is communicating the experience, developing characters, dialogue, narrating. Um, so we work on the craft of nonfiction and uh, our goal is for people to go public if they want to. So group members can read their work at our public readings. Uh, they can share it with their family members if they want. They can keep it completely private. Uh, we always give the option if people don't want to read, they can just say pass and, and we'll go on to the next person. Um, so uh, the group uh, also have published a book in 2017. So part of what we worked toward pretty quickly was we wanted our group members to be able to publish. So we encouraged them to publish their work in journals that focus on nonfiction writing or on the military experience. But we also decided we wanted to do a book project. And so that book is called The Weight of My Armor, which came out in, uh, just like I mentioned, 2017 from Parlor Press and New City Press. So mm -hmm. we've produced an anthology, which we also bring to our readings and also offer up to people who want to have a public dialogue about military experience or military service. So group members also will sometimes go to classes at colleges or universities or, or visit public schools if they're asked, just to talk about their experiences serving in the military. Um, and the other thing is we really see this group as dispelling some of the myths and stereotypes about military veterans, that military veterans um, aren't articulate or that they just follow orders and they don't have like thoughts about what they did or that they're merely patriotic. And I say merely because there's a sort of stereotype that veterans are patriotic and that they don't have questions about what they did and that they they sort of did their service and then they walked away and a lot of military veterans have lots of questions about what they did and what they went through and and they ask themselves questions about what if what they did was right or if what could they have done to save their buddy's life or what have you so 
I think part of what we want to do is create a space where veterans can work through the arts, through writing, through public dialogue. Um, and some of our group members also make music or they paint or mm -hmm. they find other outlets through volunteering to give back. Um, so we also are in many ways, I think, critiquing some of the stereotypes that are so associated with military service and giving people a different view of who are veterans and how can people ask them questions and have a true dialogue that isn't just one-sided where it's, you know, a veteran standing next to the flag at a football game. I mean, but it's mm -hmm. more, you know, how could you actually talk to people about what they went through? Mm -hmm. I'm trying to imagine this, you know, this classroom on the quad and having the veterans there and, this would be pretty different, I imagine, than just workshopping a regular, you know, class uh, project or writing project. And I'm wondering what it's like in terms of the emotion. And you're there with your, you know, your co-leader. And how is it in terms of people reading? And are they having any experience of catharsis? Or what does it look like? Yeah, every session is different. So um, there are a lot of emotions that come out. Um, people will sometimes have tears, uh, choke up, uh, when reading or have to stop and pass and say, I can't read this or someone else will read it, read it for them, whatever they've written. Um, sometimes there's a lot of laughter. People get into topics that are funny, that, and that strike other people as funny um, and other people have reactions. So it's not just the people reading or giving um, a sense of like what was a particular day in their military service or what was a particular moment, but also people experiencing by hearing someone else speak about something they've been through or what they've experienced. They, they start to go back to their experience. It triggers a memory. It triggers a response. And that can be positive and it can also be difficult. So what's striking to me is the commitment that people have to each other in sitting in that circle and listening to people, the people that come month to month. It might change month to month, but there's a really strong commitment to listening, to hearing, to responding. Um, to also questioning sometimes, like, why did that happen or how did that happen? Um, or what did you feel about that? Uh, so I think that there's, there's a strong sense of commitment. Um, it, is, it is challenging because you don't know what's going to happen. It's not like a lecture class where you walk mm -hmm. in or, a, you know, not, everybody, not everybody's sitting there with their hands folded. There's a lot of raucous laughter often. There's a lot of swearing. Um, there's a lot of energy in the room, which I find really exciting. Um, and I find that unpredictability to also be interesting too. I also think because it isn't a therapeutic environment that part of what happens is people are committed to the writing and to telling the stories and to creating and crafting the stories. So mm -hmm. part of what we're doing is honoring that artistic act of creating a story. So even if it's hard for someone or challenging for someone to go into certain spaces of their lives, they're choosing to do that. The writing prompts are really open-ended so people can decide. We always give three or four prompts, sometimes 
Um, you know, they have other ones from past meetings they can go back to, but people have a decision that they can make if whether or not on a given day they're going to go into that part of their military experience or, or that part of reintegration after military service that might be very difficult. So sometimes people will definitely stay on the lighter topics because they're not that day, they're not ready to go back to something that they consider more challenging. And other times, without even trying, they're going to be there that day. They're going to write about something that happened. I had a guy in my group who said, I will never write about the day the IED blew up the truck in Iraq and killed my friends. I will never go there. Mm -hmm. And a few years later, he did. Mm -hmm. And he had said, he had created, a, he drew a line in the sand, I will never do that. And then he... He actually sent me a piece that a friend of his had written, who wasn't even in the writing group. He lived in another state. And he said, here, if you want to know what happened that day, here's so-and-so's account. So I published it on the website. Um, but then a few years later, like I said, this this gentleman came back and wrote uh, his own version of what had happened. And it was very powerful. Not only did he write that, he wrote other, other uh, permutations of it. Um, both in prose and poetry and has read it publicly uh, at our readings. So this is, I think, part of the evolution that happens in group members is people become more comfortable representing their experiences as art, as writing, and then sharing it and, and really seeing how powerful that is for other veterans, which is the other piece of the circle that I'm mentioning, is the community that's created, the validation that's created, the support that's created. So if somebody has strong emotions, I'm really struck by the fact that usually the people sitting next to that person will either put their arm around that person or they will move in closer or they will nod or they will give some physical signal, I am with you and I'm here next to you. Mm -hmm. So I find that really powerful. And Ivy and I are also able to provide support in terms of saying this is important mm -hmm. you know val validating what people are writing and saying stay with it don't leave it you know if you need to leave it leave it but if you can keep going because this is valuable and meaningful to not only you but the people around you is it important for you eileen to have your colleague there that this is a this is something that you co-lead do you think that's important yeah, from the very beginning, I, I thought a lot about, should I do this by myself? I was department chair at the time, so I had that kind of magic wand where I could wave and say, I can do this. And um, I noticed that Ivy had come to a reading that I had sponsored of a, of a veteran who had just written a book about Iraq. And she came and she asked really, really tough questions of this military veteran who... Um, you know, he had he he had not been back from Iraq very long, and he had written this written excuse me written this very brave book. And she asked him such tough questions, and I thought, wow, she's got a lot of audacity to ask those questions. And I thought, this is someone we need. This is a voice that we need. So I went and persuaded her to take part in the group. And I think I was department chair, so technically I was her boss. So I think she felt a little <laughs> coerced. Uh -huh. And she had tried to get out of it at various points. I said, no, no, I think you'd be perfect. And also she's a poet and a, 
and a writer herself who went through the MFA program at Syracuse, which is a great program. So I wanted another person who was a writer. Um, at, you know, I'm, I'm a scholar and I'm a writer, but I wanted somebody who had sort of a poetic sensibility to be part of the group too. So it is important to have her there because she is able to hear nuances in language um, in a way that I'm a rhetorician and a rhetorical scholar, and I can hear kind of the arguments that work that is that are made in the work and I think she can really hear some of the poetic uh, pieces and nuances in language and she'll often focus in on a word and take that word and get into the heart of what a piece is about so I think it's important to have her there for that ability but also I think too we're both civilians we're both women mm -hmm. um, I have some interaction with the military because many members of my family, male members of my family served in the military. Ivy doesn't have that background. So I think we both represent different um, ends of the spectrum of experience with the military as civilians. So I think it's important for us to be able to kind of ask questions from that civilian point of view from various parts of the spectrum. Like I feel like I've had more experience with the military. She's had less, but she often asks questions that I think are vital to people in our group being able to explain their military terminology and what they mean by particular things. And as far as the emotional support that we provide each other, we often take about 15 to 20 minutes after a meeting, sometimes longer, just debriefing the meeting and talking mm -hmm. about what happened in the meeting, how we felt about it, what we want to highlight for the next meeting. Um, and I think if I were going through this group on my own as a civilian and as someone who is leading it, it would feel pretty isolating. I think the fact that it's co-facilitated is important for, mm -hmm. for her and for me. And it's also important for the veterans because both of us bring different things to the table and um, some of the vets and family members relate better to one of us or the other of us. So we provide different kinds of emotional support, uh, writing support. And um, I think that that helps balance out some of the different personalities and different needs that are in the group. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I've talked a lot about and my guests have as well is, you know, what keeps us healthy and what keeps us, you know, uh, this idea of health span and keeping us healthy in the long run. And of course, the idea of finding meaning is very important. And I'm wondering what this means to you um, as a professor and in your life, in your career. What has it meant for you to do this kind of work with moral injury? Well, for both for moral injury and for writing, for, for me, the work has meant creating a space for people to use writing as a way of understanding what their experience has been. And it's been very important for me as a, an academic to also create space for myself to process my life and use writing as a way of understanding my daily experience. I journal, for instance, every day, and I encourage people in my writing groups to also journal and use writing as a way to kind of understand the the quotidian, like what's going on with you in a given day? What are your questions? How are you feeling about your life? So for me, the meaning that comes from it is creating a space that authorizes people and validates people for using writing 
as a way of processing their lives and their experiences and using it on a daily basis and not seeing writing as special that, oh, it's only reserved for the novelists that make it, you know, or it has to be monetary. The only value of writing is you're going to write a bestseller and become famous and go on Oprah or whatever. Mm -hmm. But that writing is really an everyday act. And I think a lot about my um, grandfather and my great grandmother who kept journals and uh, they wrote down what was going on with the weather. You know, they wrote down what they did that day on the farm. So, mm -hmm. and they drew a lot of meaning from that. I remember my mom telling me about my grandfather and my great-grandmother's journals. And I remember as a kid thinking, that's really great. And I had a five-year diary and I used to write in it about what I was doing. And, you know, I would think this doesn't seem very exciting, but it meant a lot to me to to know what I had was doing on a given day. And, so for me, the meaning of all of this is creating spaces to process life and experiences through writing and, and create understanding and a space for reflection. But also it's about creating community, creating spaces where people can come together across the divide of, of generation and experience. And so the writing group that I lead um, for the veterans is intergenerational. So that's exciting because... You know, you've got 20-something veterans talking to 75-year-old veterans mm -hmm. and talking across the bridge of that experience and becoming friends, which is always wonderful to see. Mm -hmm. And then I teach at a senior living community, um, an intergenerational writing group. It isn't focused on veterans, but I get to work with people in their 80s and 90s who are writing about the span of their lives and then I also bring out undergraduate students as interns who, you know, they're in their night, they're 19 or 20 years old, 21 years old, and they're coming out to the Nottingham writing with people that are in their 80s and 90s. So there's a big intergenerational exchange going on there. So mm -hmm. I think that ability to talk to each other across the divide of age and gender and experience um, and location is, is pretty important um, because we live in a really fragmented digital world where people often live far away from the communities that they came from and there's a lot of dislocation and displacement and I feel like writing and locating yourself in a daily sense is is really profound. Mm -hmm. You know this intergenerational model is so interesting and um, several of my guests have talked about it and also talked about some of the initiatives that are happening in Europe where you'll have senior living facilities and college students moving in. Um, and so it, it helps both of them in terms of financial and, and, and helping with loneliness. And there's so many health benefits uh, with this intergenerational model. I think it's so true, and I see that with uh, having taking my 20-year-old students, my 21-year-old students out from the Syracuse University campus, which is pretty age-segregated. We have some older returning students, but many of the students are between 18 and 23 years old. And so taking them out to the senior living community, which is just, it's really under four, four miles away from the campus. So it's really interesting to see these two age-segregated institutions within just miles of each other and create a space where people can talk and write and say to each other, your story is interesting, or I never knew about that. And it was really interesting. I also took out a 
um, student a few months ago who was sitting there and one of the residents had written about a Victrola that she was playing when she was a child. And one of the students said, I don't know what a Victrola is. And so there was this opportunity to find out a, about what it is. And it turned out the student actually knew what a Victrola looked like, but had never heard the word. So you watch this exchange of knowledge mm -hmm. happening. And then I also had this forum at the Nottingham one time, um, and it was with uh, Janet Wilmus aging and society class. And there was a forum where we talked about dating and what had changed over the years with dating and online dating versus face-to-face -face dating, which of course everyone at the Nottingham had been on face-to-face -face mm -hmm. dates and met their spouses that way. Mm -hmm. So it was really fascinating to watch mm -hmm. the two communities talking about things like texting, online mm -hmm. dating, uh, going steady and then, you know, pretty much getting married a few months after you met somebody and it, and, you know, my, my college students looking aghast at the idea that, you know, you could know someone for a couple of weeks and then get married and then go off to war, which of course was the story mm -hmm. of some of the people in, in, um, the Nottingham. So I think the intergenerational spaces are really important. Um, and I, I hope that that model that I, and I have, seen and looked at some of the stories about the intergenerational living situations um, that are happening in Europe and other countries. And I'm hopeful that that kind of mixed generation housing could take part. And I mean, it would be wonderful if universities started to facilitate that. And, you know, so you've given me some ideas. Maybe that's something we could look into <laughs> down the road. What about, um, I know you have a, a, a high school-aged daughter. Is it important for you to have her experience uh, some intergenerational uh, relationships? Yeah, she has grown up going to the Nottingham Senior Living Community with me. So <laughs> I have to say she kind of grew up under the table at the meetings that I mm -hmm. led out there. And she goes out less frequently now because she has a driver's license and she she's an indoor climber, an outdoor climber. So she spends a lot of time hanging off of a cliff face and, and doing less writing than she used to. But um, so yes, it has. And we live, like many academics, we live far away from our extended family. My husband and I are both academics. So she has really adopted some of the group members as, as grandparents over the years. And um, it, one of the best moments I've had um, in taking her to the Nottingham was um, Dorothy Reister, who founded the um, art park out in Casanova, Casanova, it was a member of my writing group and she passed away a short time ago and she also started her memoir about uh her experiences as a sculptor and as like a you know really on the cutting edge of being a woman sculptor at a time when women weren't pursuing that kind of art um and then founding the art park she was out there launching her memoir and autumn and her friend naona came out there and met Dorothy and told her how much they loved the art park and how wonderful that space was. And Dorothy smiled and she said, I created the art park so that kids like you would go out there and love art and come to love it and love being outside. And mm -hmm. so that was a really important moment where I watched a kind of an exchange of, again, an exchange of knowledge between this this really revolutionary woman sculptor who had this vision of this wonderful park and then these two girls who had 
gone on field trips there and spent time there and loved it. And mm-hmm. it was great to see that kind of exchange happening. And also, I feel like uh, Dorothy also validated Autumn, my daughter's interest in art, because my daughter's a photographer. So that's in addition to rock climbing, she loves photography. And so watching Dorothy sort of communicate, you know, you can have a life and a full life as a woman artist and then seeing Autumn just sort of eating that up. So mm-hmm. that was wonderful to see that. Beautiful to see that role model. What's next for you, Eileen, in terms of building community and helping people come together and write their experiences? I think for me, um, what's important is sustaining the groups that I have. So I'm uh, 18 years into the one at the Nottingham, and then I'm eight years into the one for veterans at Syracuse University. That And, you know, that group is open to people in the community. Um, sustaining is important and renewing. And um, the Moral Injury Project as well, which is only four years old, but you know, is also something I'm avidly involved in. But for me, it's sustaining these projects and helping them grow and helping helping create new connections between what we're doing in the medium of writing with what is happening in other artistic mediums. Um, and the Moral Injury Project recently uh, had an event uh, with an, a, a group of filmmakers who made a film about moral injury called Almost Sunrise. And so that was exciting. We had a event at Lemoyne College where we screened the film and the filmmakers had a chance to do a talk back with the audience about what that was like to create a documentary about moral injury and then also to connect that event with other workshops and other kinds of opportunities to to address moral injury, whether it was through spiritual traditions or through therapeutic connections or through even activism and political organizing. So we created this mini conference set of workshops that followed up the film screening. Um, So my goal always is to create interdisciplinary spaces and intergenerational spaces where people can think about what healing modalities and modes of expression work best for them instead of just prescribing one mode or one way of doing that work. Um, So I think what's next for me is to continue to create these connections and spaces where people can come across these uh, different ways of healing, writing, expressing, Um, And also extend this work from the community of veterans and senior citizens more outward to people who are also suffering, like victims of gun violence, uh, refugees, uh, people that are being detained and then thrust away from where they're trying to be. I mean, all of the work that's going on around immigration and detention, people who are incarcerated, that is also interesting to me in terms of a population that has had their rights violated and their right to autonomy and self-determination taken away, whether it was because of, of, of a prison sentence or it's because of detention. So finding ways to work with those populations mm-hmm. and especially around the issue of moral injury as I was watching children being taken away from their parents, it was all over national TV and in the papers, um, people seeking asylum in the U.S. and having their children taken away, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know, watching that—that's that's a huge uh, travesty. And I don't know, as we as we all know, we don't know if those families will ever be reunited. Some of them have, but 
that question, deep question of moral injury, like how can we as a nation uh, persist when we're doing that, you know, or it's being done in our name. Mm-hmm. Um, so I watch that and I think the opportunities to work on uh, healing and uh, correction of those injustices and thinking through moral injury questions and I come back to the question I was asking myself when I was 12 and 13 and I encountered the Holocaust and these first person accounts is how could this happen? How could we let this happen? How could this have been the idea of someone of the right thing to do? Um, So I think for me, it's finding ways to answer that question and keep asking that question and keep trying to create communities where people of conscience and, and, um, goodwill can come together to share their stories and also to think about how we can move away from uh, those kinds of moments where we make the wrong decision, we make the decision that's narrow and mean and, and uh, horrible. So, I mean, I, those are the questions I've been working on my entire life. And, um, you know, there's a lot of ways to work on those questions. And for me, writing has been, and creating writing communities has been a big way of doing that. Mm-hmm. And as you're speaking about moral injury and how it affects all of us, it, it reminds me of this idea of secondary trauma, right? So when you're working with people who have been traumatized and in whatever capacity, it sounds like there's almost a secondary moral injury where just being a, a citizen of this country, there might f- be this this part of us that says, you know, I didn't do this personally, but I live in this country. And these are the policies of my country. Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. And I think in the part of moral injury um, that I think tends to get forgotten is the idea of witnessing. Like you can witness, you could witness a murder, you could witness um, a war crime, you could witness something that you can't control. You can't stop it, you can't control it. You can't make it go away. And then you're, you've got that in your head, you've got that in your body, and it's with you. And I think... For many of us, some of the recent actions of the U.S. government have been so heinous in many of our minds. And I'm thinking about the detentions of people seeking asylum and like the taking away of the children. That that for many people is a line that's been crossed. Mm -hmm. And there's a sense of this is so wrong morally and and also legally. For many people, it's like, this isn't even legal. Um, So how can we continue to do this? And then you have people around you, whether it's Facebook friends that are more conservative or people who believe and so believe in secure borders that they're saying by any means necessary. But for for many of us, I think um, it really is a moment of conscience. This can't happen. We can't continue to support a government that does takes this action in our names when will it stop what will be next Mm -hmm. and so there's been a lot of people equating what's going on to the deportations that surrounded the rise of dictatorships across the globe and looking at different moments in history and there's a lot to that and paying attention to that sense of the violation of a moral compass 
is really important. At the same time, maintaining a historical sense, because as many people have pointed out, taking children away from parents was something that happened in the U.S. under slavery. It happened with the removal of Native American children from mm -hmm. their tribes and their families and being sent off to boarding schools. So like creating a historical lineage to say, oh, well, we've never done this before. Well, our, actually in our nation, mm -hmm. we have done this before. This has happened before. Um, you know, so I think that there's the balancing of the moral outrage and anger about our current presidential regime, and yet there's also the need to acknowledge, well, actually in the fabric of the country, we have had these moments and we have to account for these as well as take action against what's happening now. And so moral injury and moral outrage, you know, you have to kind of balance like, what what is it that creates a society that makes these decisions? Um, and those are complicated questions. Those are, you know, you ask me what's next. I like to think about these questions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's so interesting because so many of my clients, my psychotherapy clients have come in over the last couple of years just sort of, they they look shell-shocked themselves. Yeah. And they, they come in and they have sort of a general malaise, general I'm depressed. And it's very interesting because I think, you know, as a social worker, I think, well, what's the context? Yeah. And, you know, I think about, well, of course, and we look at, you know, what's going on in the big picture, what's going on. But I never thought of it in terms of them suffering, a, you know, what you're describing here as moral injury. I thought of, you know, they talk about hopelessness and frustration and surprise and disgust. But it's very interesting as I'm thinking about some of my clients now who just are shaking their heads. I think that this is a really good way to help them understand why they feel the way they do. I think people feel a sense of helplessness or depression or anxiety in relationship to what's going on. And in, in terms of the direction of the country uh, because they feel like the, the choices of the politicians, the lines of action being pursued and claims about what the United States is about violates what their sense of what the United States is or what they, come, what they came to believe their notion of the nation state was. And so I think part of what we're seeing in terms of the despair, anger, frustration is, uh, connected to like people thinking this isn't my country anymore or this isn't the direction I think the country should be going in. It's also happening on the other side in terms of the right and you know Trump has tapped into that and you know as a rhetorician I'm also interested in the political rhetoric that people engage and so this idea of making America great again well great in what sense and mm -hmm great by what standard and so I think great for home yeah absolutely who's included in that great um, and who who's who's thought to have not made it great so I think that a lot of what people are experiencing is is a sense of loss and despair and frustration and also a sense of what can be done um, because many of us have marched and written letters to our representatives and spent time organizing and yet we still see these actions being carried out that are very much against what we believe in so i do think there's a sense of moral injury in relationship to the direction of the country and i think it the the thing that's complex is 
that that goes on on both sides of the political spectrum. So people believing that they want a biblical interpretation of the nation. So, uh, you know, people organizing to bring the Bible into uh, the running of the government and believing that they can actually take biblical passages and say, this is how we should run our nation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the many of the and members of the uh, administration have been critical of religious extremism in other nations, mm-hmm. but will support the notion of biblical uh, claims being brought into the U.S. government, and, you know, at the same time, our founding fathers wanted to separate church and state. So I think it's very complicated to, like, get up and feel a lot of equanimity about the direction the country's headed in. At the same time, I would say, in a classic half-full versus half-empty scenario, we have no uh, way forward other than arguing and fighting for what we believe is right, and also figuring out how to listen to each other. And that's where I think the focus on, you know, writing and experiences and engaging each other in a dialogue can be extremely valuable because, you know, posting dual claims on Facebook and fighting with each other in like a social media venue has not resulted in any very strong notion of change. Um, So anyway, that's kind of where I'm thinking that your clients are probably experiencing what I think a lot of us are, which is, you know, feeling a sense of alienation about where our nation is headed and like, how are we culpable for that? What is our part in that? What can we do about it? And when we do take action, is it making a difference? Mm-hmm. I think also the the part that leaves a really bitter taste for for many people is the hypocrisy. Right. Is to hear on the one hand, you know, how we're great and just and fair and the greatest nation and then say, wait a minute, how does this square? It doesn't make sense. And um, I know in, you know, just based on uh, learning about trauma, treating trauma, understanding trauma, you know, when your head is saying yes, but your body's saying no, you know, you just run into a lot of trouble. Absolutely. Yeah. So Eileen, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's just been really fascinating and I really appreciate the work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for asking such great questions. And I appreciate being part of the, the uh, cast. And also, I just think the idea of zestful aging is a great, as a rhetorician, I want to praise the title of your, your podcast, because many people just see aging as something they dread or something they avoid. They don't even want to say that they're aging. They'll speak about it in terms of you know, euphemistic, like I'm so and such years young or, (laughs) and, and I think the idea of zestfully aging and embracing what you can do and what you do have to offer and what you are already doing is really powerful. So I want to say just even being invited to take part in a podcast on zestful aging uh, has created in me an appreciation for being middle-aged and, you know, headed toward more than middle-aged because I feel like so much of our discourse on aging is, is about the negatives and the deficits. And so I love the idea of zestfully moving into this process of aging. I'm already in it. So, and I do feel like I live my life pretty zestfully. So I really loved it. 
Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at nicolechristina.com. And please consider becoming a patron of the show. You will get access to exclusive bonuses and you will be part of the Zestful Aging community. Keep us going strong. Go to patreon.com slash zestful aging. See you next time for another episode of Zestful Aging.